Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. On December 7, 1941, the Empire of Japan launched a surprise attack against the United States of America. Japanese forces struck at Pearl Harbor, killing over 2,000 people and devastating a good portion of the American fleet based at Pearl. This attack led the United States into World War II. While December 7th is a date etched in the minds of many Americans, few are aware that a similar attack on American forces took place in the Philippines on December 8th. The attacks took place within hours of each other, but due to the international dateline, it was technically December 8th in the Philippines when Pearl Harbor was attacked. At the time, General Douglas MacArthur was the commander of U.S. and Filipino forces in the Philippines. This month, we are going to examine General MacArthur's response to the Japanese attack on the Philippines on December 8, 1941. MacArthur's response has bewildered scholars mainly because the Philippines had nine hours warning about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and yet even with this seeming advantage, the Japanese were still able to surprise and devastate the American Far East Air Force based in the Philippines. General MacArthur had been in the Philippines since 1935, when he began his tenure as military advisor to the Commonwealth of the Philippines. He retired from active duty in the United States Army in 1937, but continued to serve as military advisor in the Philippines. When the Japanese militarized occupied Indochina in the summer of 1941, MacArthur was recalled to active duty by President Roosevelt. As commander of the American and Philippine forces in the Philippines, he was responsible for defending the islands against possible Japanese aggression. Since 1900, Japan and the United States had been steadily expanding in the Pacific competing for resources, military bases, and influence. Many on both sides believed that a military conflict was inevitable. On the eve of Pearl Harbor, the United States had frozen Japanese assets in the United States to use as leverage to force the Japanese to leave Indochina and China, to withdraw from the Tripartite Act, which allied Japan with Nazi Germany and Italy, and to sign a non-aggression pact. The Japanese also had demands. They insisted that the United States end its naval expansion in the Pacific, leave China, and force the Dutch to provide the Japanese with raw materials from the Indies. Despite diplomatic efforts, the relationship between Japan and the United States grew more and more hostile. By the time MacArthur was recalled to active duty, the Philippines was virtually surrounded. The Japanese held the Chinese coast to the north, controlled the water south of the Philippines, occupied Indochina to the west, and held a group of Pacific islands to the east that had been given to Japan by the Versailles Treaty after World War I, including what is today Micronesia and the Marshall Islands. MacArthur described the Philippines to his staff members as the key to the door that unlocks the Pacific. In MacArthur's mind, the Philippines would be the axis on which the fate of a military conflict in the Pacific would turn. Essentially, What happened in the opening days of the anticipated conflict 
would likely set the tone of the war and give the victor the momentum. Although MacArthur had been responsible for the development of the Philippine Armed Forces since the mid-30s, in 1941 he was only halfway through the planned 10-year project. From the very beginning, due to the Great Depression, MacArthur lacked the money and supplies he deemed essential to building a viable military. Even though he was pleased that Washington was finally seeing his side of the argument about the value of seriously preparing the Philippines, MacArthur nevertheless worried that this sudden interest in 1941 was too late. He was responsible for not just American and Philippine forces, but over 15 million Filipino civilians. While he was publicly confident about the capabilities of his forces, given the actual state of the forces in the Philippines, MacArthur was anxious that war be avoided. That being said, he also had a firm belief that destiny put him in the Philippines for a reason. By early fall, it was clear that talks in Washington, D.C. between Secretary of State Cordell Hall and Japanese diplomats were going nowhere. Suspicious that the Japanese were using the talks to stall for time, Secretary Hall told Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson that the situation was now likely in the hands of the military. Diplomacy had failed. On November 24th, Washington radioed commanders in the Pacific, warning about the possibility of Japanese strikes against Guam and the Philippines. Many expected a surprise attack because Japan had already exhibited a marked preference for attacking without any formal declaration of war. The invasion of China, in 1937, was considered the prime example of this tendency. Army Chief of Staff General George Marshall warned MacArthur about the possibility of a surprise attack, and gave MacArthur the authority to fly reconnaissance missions outside of Philippine waters to ensure early detection of any attack. On November 27th, intelligence reports indicated that a large Japanese expeditionary force had set sail from Shanghai. The War Department issued MacArthur yet another warning, the text of which reads, Negotiations with the Japanese appear to be terminated to all practical purposes, with only the barest possibilities that the Japanese government might come back and offer to continue. Japanese future action unpredictable, but hostile action possible at any moment. If hostilities cannot be avoided, the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. This policy should not be construed as restricting you to a course of action that might jeopardize your defense. A day later, Washington sent more orders, instructing commanders to protect their personnel and equipment from sabotage. Unfortunately, the emphasis on sabotage gave the recipients of these orders the impression that fifth columnists and saboteurs were the most immediate danger that they faced. Later in life, MacArthur maintained that in early December he ordered Major General Louis Brereton, the commander of the Far East Air Force in the Philippines, to move four B-17 squadrons based at Clark Field south to the Del Monte Airfield in Mindanao. No orders exist to corroborate the story, but in November, MacArthur was presented with a study concerning the vulnerability of these airfields. Around this time, he also informed General Marshall in Washington that he'd ordered the B-17 south for safety. Nevertheless, on December 8th, for a variety of reasons, the majority of the B-17s were still based at Clark Field on the day the Japanese attacked. MacArthur biographer D. Clayton James entitles his chapter section on the events of December 8th, Nine Hours to Disaster. 
To better understand those nine hours, it is helpful to reconstruct a timeline of events. At 2 a.m. the morning of December 8, 1941, a party thrown by the 27th Bombardment Group in honor of General Brereton finally wound down. An hour later, around 3 a.m., the Asiatic Fleet Headquarters in Manila began receiving the first information about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Within 30 to 40 minutes, MacArthur's Chief of Staff, Brigadier General Richard Sutherland, learned of the attack and immediately notified MacArthur. As MacArthur hurriedly dressed, he received a call from Washington confirming the news of the attack. He asked his wife Jean to bring him his Bible and, after reading for a while, set out for his headquarters. There has been considerable speculation that MacArthur was in shock the first couple of hours that morning. MacArthur was definitely surprised. Not that the Japanese had attacked, but that they had hit Pearl Harbor, a place he felt had a strong garrison, excellent anti-aircraft defenses, and the backing of the Pacific Fleet. According to his own account, for the first few hours that morning, MacArthur was under the impression that the Japanese attack had been thwarted and that the Japanese had likely suffered a serious setback at Pearl Harbor. He was also somewhat confused about the question of Philippine neutrality. He described the status of the Philippines as indeterminate and hesitated to take offensive action in the first hours of the war. This may have been because he was unsure of the loyalty and support of the Philippine government, or it may have stemmed from his hope that the Philippines would remain neutral. By 4 a.m., Brereton's headquarters had received word of the attacks, and within the hour, Brereton visited MacArthur's headquarters to ask for permission to launch a B-17 raid against the Japanese at Formosa. Sutherland told him that MacArthur was in a conference and could not be disturbed, and then informed him that a strike could not take place without reconnaissance. Brereton left with the intention of returning later to get permission from MacArthur for the reconnaissance and the raid. Brereton returned at 7.15, but once again he was turned away by Sutherland, who told him that MacArthur was too busy. Shortly after 8 a.m., radar at Iba Field tracked aircraft over the South China Sea that appeared to be heading for Luzon. P-40 fighters were scrambled to intercept the aircraft, and the B-17s at Clark Field were sent up without bomb loads to escape destruction on the ground. The P-40s failed to intercept the Japanese planes, and by 9.30 there were reports of attacks against Baguio and other areas in the northern part of the Philippines. Hearing of these reports, Brereton telephoned MacArthur's headquarters for permission to launch a strike against the Japanese at Formosa. Once again, his request was refused. Ten minutes later, however, Sutherland called him back and told him that a reconnaissance mission over Formosa had been approved. At this point, the timeline becomes more difficult to establish. According to some reports, MacArthur and Brereton finally were able to talk sometime between 10.14 and 11 a.m. that morning. In this purported conversation, MacArthur gave Brereton the authority to undertake air action on his own discretion. Brereton always insisted that during this conversation, he told MacArthur of his plan to send reconnaissance planes to check out Formosa in anticipation of launching an attack against Japanese forces there later in the day. Later in life, MacArthur consistently denied that he ever spoke to Brereton about Formosa. But at the time, a message mentioning the planned attack and signed MacArthur had been sent to the War Department. Whether or not MacArthur and Brereton actually spoke about Formosa, 
This fixation on Formosa would inadvertently seal the fate of the Far East Air Force. By 11.30 a.m., the P-40s that had been scrambled to intercept Japanese planes hours before returned to Clark to refuel. Brereton ordered them all back in anticipation of the raid on Formosa. This was a major tactical error that would leave entire squadrons defenseless on the ground. In addition to the P-40s, the B-17s were also recalled, some to be readied for the Formosa reconnaissance mission. As the P-40s were fueled and the B-17s were being prepared, word came from the Iba airfield that enemy fighters were once again being tracked over the South China Sea. Three squadrons of P-40s from other airfields were sent to intercept, and fighters based at Del Carmen Field were ordered to provide cover for the capital city of Manila. While these preparations were being made, 108 Mitsubishi bombers and 84 Zeros were bearing down on Iba and Clark fields. Warnings were sent to Clark, but many of the clerks and pilots were at lunch. The commander of the airfield would later deny that he ever received warnings of the coming attack. Patrolling over Manila Bay, the fighters from Del Carmen airfield began receiving frantic orders to go to Clark Field. As the fighters turned northward, the attack was only moments away. It had been nine hours since Pearl Harbor. Sometime between 12.10 and 12.35, Japanese bombers appeared in the skies over Clark Field. The communications center for the field was the first building destroyed. The Japanese pilots were elated. They had expected fierce resistance because of the advanced warning the United States would have, and instead they encountered little to no opposition. The many P-40s and B-17s on the ground at Clark made easy targets. A few American fighters arrived during the attack and engaged in dogfights with the Japanese, but these few fighters were unable to stop the destruction. By 1.37 p.m., Clark Field was unrecognizable. A wasteland filled with metal charred skeletons and a black roiling pillar of oily smoke, visible from as far away as Manila. By the time the fighters from the Del Carmen airfield arrived in the skies over Clark Field, the damage had been done. At Iba, an entire pursuit squadron was just touching down to refuel when 54 Mitsubishi bombers and 56 Zeros suddenly appeared and began attacking the field. The entire pursuit squadron was destroyed on the ground, and in the first moments of the attack, Iba's communication and radar capabilities were destroyed. Ten hours after Pearl Harbor, a second surprise attack had devastated another American force in the Pacific. Compared to Pearl Harbor, casualties were relatively limited, but in many respects what happened at Clark and Iba fields was an even greater disaster. The Japanese attack on the Philippines destroyed the Far East Air Force, a force vital to the defense of the Philippines. Out of 35 B-17s and 72 P-40s, only 17 remained of each. To accomplish this destruction, the Japanese had lost a mere seven planes. While the losses at Pearl Harbor were greater, the loss of this small air force meant that essentially, on day one of the war against Japan, the United States fumbled the key to the door that unlocks the Pacific. Within two days, the loss of this air umbrella would have devastating results. On December 10th, Japanese planes attacked the U.S. Navy Yard at Cavite. Virtually unopposed, they left the yard in flames.
On December 9th, President Franklin Roosevelt held his first wartime press conference. A reporter asked about the disaster at Clark Field, but the president avoided the issue and moved on to another topic. The attack on Pearl Harbor was investigated several times, but there was never a formal investigation into what went wrong in the Philippines and who was to blame. General Brereton was sharply criticized by General Hap Arnold, the commander of the U.S. Army Air Force, for allowing his planes to get caught on the ground after repeated warnings about a surprise attack. General Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, never reprimanded MacArthur, although Marshall would later comment that he just couldn't understand how MacArthur could have been so unprepared. By the end of the war, however, even if there had been a drive to investigate MacArthur's conduct on December 8th, MacArthur's appointment in 1945 as Supreme Commander of Allied Powers in the occupation of Japan made it politically impossible to hold him accountable for the disaster that took place in the Philippines on the 8th. While the issue of who to blame continues to fascinate military historians, according to MacArthur biographer D. Clayton James, the gaps and contradictions in the available evidence make it impossible to fully explain the reasons for the disaster in the Philippines or to determine definitively who is at fault. Or it may just be that the blame lies on everyone's shoulders, from Brereton to Sutherland to Washington, D.C. to MacArthur. Brereton clearly made tactical errors that made his forces extremely vulnerable. He also failed to move the B-17s to the safety of the Del Monte airfield, as MacArthur had repeatedly ordered in the days prior to the attack. Sutherland can bear blame for obstructing Brereton's access to MacArthur on the morning that the air chief should have been a vital part of MacArthur's decision-making. Washington's failure to properly supply the Philippines, as well as its decision to send such a large concentration of B-17s without proper defenses or early warning systems, was a serious blunder. Regardless of these many failures, as commanding officer, the loss of the Far East Air Force was ultimately MacArthur's responsibility. As William Manchester points out in American Caesar, however, Assigning responsibility does not clarify the events of December 8th. There is still much that remains a mystery. There were many moments in the years preceding and in the very hours leading up to the attack in which the events of the 8th could have been avoided. As with any disaster, the events of December 8th had a long fuse. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.